Tonight's gospel reading is from Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the river of Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Watch out for the gnarled hand of God. Years ago, I worked as an associate under, as, under a pastor in another city, a city in the Northwest, which I shall not name, but which has big fir trees and a space needle. I'll just call him Pastor Karamazov. Pastor K was an outspoken and stern Russian immigrant who would often wave around the gnarled hand of God. His call to the ministry was based on this gruesome accident in northern Canada in which a kerosene stove exploded and he was badly burned. Holding on for dear life, Pastor K made this bargain with God. Bring me through this, Lord, and I'll give me my life to full-time Christian service. And he survived. And this was his message. Repent or perish. Like some demented divine traffic cop, he used to wave around that gnarled, burn-scarred hand and say, Come, come and make yourselves right with God. Repent. One summer, it seemed like no one was coming to our poor little church. There was this local softball league that often scheduled games and tournaments on Sunday mornings. So one Sunday, Pastor K waved that gnarled hand of God and went on a rant. It seemed that some of our young people would rather be playing softball than coming to church. Well, one day, they'll be playing softball in hell. <laughs> he actually said those words. Softball in hell. What happens at softball in hell? Of course, your brain is going to be riffing on that the whole time, which is fine. Um, I don't know. What do you think? I think the beer would always be warm. There would be no sacrifice bunts or sacrifice flies. Huh? There'd be a lot of stealing. And I think no one would ever get home. Aw. Today, episode one in an occasional series, Dr. Mark's Topics in Theology. Today's topic, repentance. Now, as you can see, I've got some issues. 
I've got that gnarled hand of God waving itself around in my head. Maybe we all do. An angry scepter, a gloomy ghost of a divine being who is shouting at you, repent, or you'll soon be playing softball in hell. And then church becomes going back for your weekly dose of shame. And communion becomes this self-scrutinizing game in which you scour your little conscience and you get your soul all tidied up for the meal at which you once again fend off the wrath of an angry God. I'm going to lead with the Luther card. Luther taught that the reason we gather as community around word, preaching, and sacrament, communion, is that we forget. We humans have this tremendous tendency toward idolatry, for creating God in our own image, in the image of our family, our tribe, our nation, our culture. Left to our own devices, we create a God who is simply a great big one of us. This very much happens with our notion of repentance. Repent. What a crazy and visceral word. Doesn't your body just get all clenched up, curled up into your core? Repent as if it's something you can do based on your vague understandings of good and bad, right and wrong, sinful and righteous. We do this in conservative revivalist circles in which for Pastor Karamazov, repentance means to turn away from the evils of softball. But we also see it on the left as well. Earnest, pious liberals, me included, have their own programs for turning our lives around. Meditation, yoga, journaling, the power of now, balloon Sunday. They're good things in and of themselves, but again, they so easily become our idols, a projection of us. These notions of repentance do seem like projections of us and our culture, our psyche, are quirky little constructions of what we think will make us a better person or fix our lives or spare us from playing right field for hell's little softball team. Well, the Greek word metanoia, repentance, means simply to turn around. And in our text for today, John the Baptist is shouting out, repent, turn around. His singular message in this particular context is this, You don't need the temple. It is corrupt. We've been sold out by our leaders who are puppets of the Roman Empire. And that whole system of making sacrifices is turning you into slaves. They want you to think that making these animal sacrifices will bring you closer to God. But you've become lost in this little game of buying and selling these sacrifices. And it is a godless game. Yahweh has left the building and will no longer be bribed with a goat and three doves. This is nothing new. This theme is all over the Hebrew prophets. It's not your sacrifice I want, Yahweh says. It's your heart. Don't make these little bargains with me and then turn around and cheat and lie and steal and neglect the widow and the orphan and the foreigner. I can't be bought with your little sacrifice. Turn around. Repent. That was John's message. But again, as soon as we try to repent, 
we seem to get it all wrong. We end up with this hollow, empty game of moral improvement. But what if? What if repentance is not something you do? What if repentance is a response to something that is done to you? What if repentance is a response to something bigger? John proclaims repent, and then he adds, because, for, the kingdom of God is near. The realm of God is approaching. This repentance is concrete, historical, particular, specific. This coming of the realm of God is downright schizophrenic, so detached from our world, so other, so strange and new, something we cannot simply tell ourselves or will into existence. At the beginning of this new realm, Jesus emerges from the baptismal waters and the heavens are torn apart. The heavens are schizoed, ripped apart. The verb schizo means to tear apart, to violently tear. As Jesus is coming up out of the water, he sees the heavens torn apart, schizoed, and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And then at the end of the story, Mark will use that verb again. In the moment that Jesus dies, the curtain of the temple was torn, schizoed, in two from top to bottom. This verb schizo, the root root word for our word schizophrenic, means to violently tear, like a ravenous lion tearing the flesh off the bones of a helpless lamb. Why this strange hyperbolic language, this image of a violent tearing of the wall between two worlds? It goes to the very heart of Mark's gospel. These hopeless humans have ears but cannot hear, eyes but cannot see. What? What keeps them so blind and so deaf? I think it's our religion, our culture, our ego, our presumption of righteousness, our belief that if we just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and give it the old college try, we'll be able to fix everything. That's why, as Jesus leaves the scene, the curtain of the temple designed to shield us from hearing and seeing God is torn in two, ripped open from the inside out. We are so very far from understanding God's ways that the heavens have to be violently torn apart for God to enter our world and confront us with the message of the sacrificial suffering love of the cross. And suddenly, just when you are staring into the abyss of your failed resolutions to clean up your act, heaven itself tears open your heart and it all clicks into place. Jesus' kingdom is all about love, letting go of life, giving it all away. All the crazy characters in Mark, especially the disciples, clutch and grab at life, and they are always getting it wrong. And yet, still, Jesus stays with them, keeps teaching them his way of serving and giving and letting go, his way of the cross. He teaches them 
You know, among the Gentiles, among the Romans, their so-called rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants. They get people to submit to them by way of threat. They coerce, they bribe, they charm and seduce each other to get their way. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave to all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life away. Jesus is saying, look, there is a different way of ordering your life. Heaven has opened and torn apart everything you know. Be like children. Welcome those on the outside. Be suspicious of those in power. They might be there for all the wrong reasons. And if you truly want greatness, if you really want to do something important, something worthwhile, serve each other. Wash each other's feet. Share your bread. Gather in the outcasts. Touch the untouchables. Welcome the foreigner. Comfort and cherish those who are abandoned and neglected. And be simple and childlike in your service. Don't gloat. Don't obsess. Don't try to get ahead. Don't manipulate or threaten others. Don't sit at the head of the table. Because in the cross, you are loved madly and passionately by this God who tears open the heavens to find you. And they are loved too. All of them. Repentance, turning away from those selfish little bargains you make with God, that is good news. But it's not something you do. It's a response to what God has first done for you. In Jesus, this master who is your servant, the very heavens have been torn open, and the great, loving, self-giving heart of God has become as real to you as your skin, bone, and blood. And this strange and wonderful power of Jesus is here with you now. Power to serve. Power to lay down your life so that you may take it back again. We gather together around word, preaching, and sacrament, the Eucharist meal, in order to remember. Because we are always slipping back into idolatry, creating God in our own image, a great big me and mine and not God. And our worship, every time, ought to be a feast of broken idols, destroyed by the word of the cross, that kills and makes alive, that dashes our projections to pieces, breaks our idols upon this rock, so that we can hear the word, start over, be born again. And you are now invited to join me at this table. Your idols are broken shattered. Your false, feeble attempts to clean up your act, they lie in a heap. Dust and ashes, broken shards of so many failed New Year's resolutions. And here, in this cup and this bread, we have a new every time resolution. In the name of the heavens being torn apart and the reign of God coming near. May this meal become your New Year's resolution, this time and every time, 
you are invited to repent because the realm of God is coming near. And you are called to a life of bold, boundless, fearless love in response to what God has first done for you. Amen. Amen.